Thank you for joining us today for this broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. I'm very glad you're here. I'm glad we're here. Our guest today is Dr. Phil Wolfson, and he's going to be talking to us about his latest book, The Ketamine Papers. You want to stay tuned for this exciting interview. Some of you have already uh, heard Dr. Wolfson when he was here talking about his MDMA study and when he was here also talking about his very deeply touching book, Noah. So stay tuned for this interview with Dr. Phil Wolfson. But first, news and notes in psychology and medicine. I've got a couple of things that I've got to talk to you about. First of all, a couple of weeks ago, I made an announcement about a new uh, laser treatment for prostate cancer. Very, very new stuff. Being done in Europe, didn't think it was being done here in the United States yet. This is a laser treatment. It's not surgery. Well, recently I met a man, and he already has had this laser treatment. Phenomenal success. As some of you recall, the urethra, the little tube that carries our urine, goes right through the center of the prostate. When the prostate gets larger, that little tube gets squeezed off. When we do surgery on the prostate, it's very tricky stuff because you can touch a nerve, and if you do touch a nerve, which happens often, you can then be incontinent, namely, you've got a problem, you can urinate in your clothing for the rest of your life, and there's also erectile dysfunction. With this new treatment, which is now happening right here in the United States, it's a laser treatment, success, and the patient that I talked to has no problem with urination and no problem with erectile functioning. So those of you, and most everybody, knows somebody who's got some issues with prostate because of the prevalence of this condition. You want to spread the word about the laser treatment. A couple of other notes. A healthy lifestyle greatly reduces the risk of coronary artery disease, even in people who are genetically prone. Here's what was discovered. If you have a genetic propensity towards coronary artery issues, you can counter them with a healthy lifestyle. And the study showed that. However, if you have a genetic predisposition towards not having coronary artery disease, you can counter that with an unhealthy lifestyle and then get coronary artery disease. This is important stuff for those of you who are considering making lifestyle changes. Let's see what else we have here. Oh, this is a warning about herbal remedies. Many of us use supplements. I've talked about supplements here before. It turns out that a very high percentage of drug-related liver injuries are coming from supplements. In fact, these injuries rose from 7% to about 20% in seven years. Some of the bodybuilding formulas and, and anabolic steroids and weight loss products, some with green tea extract, are causing liver problems. So if you're using supplements, do a bunch of research before you just start swallowing this stuff. And last... Staying physically active can improve cognitive function. Some are asking, do people who have high cognitive function stay physically active? Well, it works both ways, folks. It's just another argument. You've been hearing me saying it for years. Some kind of physical activity is essential for good health. Ah, now to our interview. Throughout all of history, there have been people who are fascinated with the inner workings of the mind. How does the mind work? What does it do when we're sleeping? Where does information go when we're not using it? Does the mind have levels? Remember Freud talked about the id, ego, and superego? Is all experience permanently recorded? Can everything be retrieved? 
Can we totally control our thoughts? Do some people have more mind than others? Can the mind direct healing? That's an interesting question, isn't it? And most recently, can we download information from a computer directly into our mind? Can we download information from our mind to a computer for use elsewhere, such as in a robot? People interested in the inner workings of the mind have developed many methods for thousands of years for investigating the mind. These methods for studying the mind include cutting into the brain, such as autopsies, drilling into the cranium, called trepanning, sitting in anechoic chambers and samadhi tanks, digital imaging, meditating, and taking medicines which enhance the doors of perception. These medicines are sometimes referred to as psychedelic because they enhance the experience of consciousness. Indigenous people all over the world have ingested psychedelic medicines for thousands of years. Every continent has its pharmacopoeia of mind-enhancing medicines. Many of you who are familiar with the history of what is referred to as the drug wars, by the way, this was a politically sanitized way of referring to a war on people of color, They'll, you'll recall that it was in 1935 that Secretary of the Treasury Andrew Mellon, of the famous Mellon banking family, appointed his niece's husband, Harry Anslinger, to be chief of the newly formed Federal Bureau of Narcotics. Anslinger, an infamous racist, was convinced that black men and Mexicans were giving marijuana to white women in order to seduce them, and he went on a national rampage which eventually resulted in the worldwide War on Drugs, a.k.a. War on People. Prior to Harry's work, medical doctors were in charge of drugs like heroin, cocaine, and marijuana, and they were doing a great job at control. Harry took away their prescription privileges, sent many doctors to jail when they refused to stop prescribing to their patients. Eventually, the war on drugs ruined the lives of tens of thousands of families and prevented scientists from doing research on psychedelic medicines, which had the potential to heal illness. This war and the suppression of even high-level university research has lasted over 50 years. The war on drugs really was a war on people of color and people who could not afford a lawyer to beat the rap. And it's well documented that our prisons are filled with a dramatically significant percentage of people with color in their skin. Stand back and look at that phenomenon. There's a place on our planet where the people with white skin place people with brown and beige skin in cages. That's what it looks like when you stand back. The war eventually also became a war on people who, interested in inner mind exploration, exercised their constitutional right to ingest whatever they wanted to in the safe privacy of their homes without ever harming another human being. These inner space explorers also went to jail. During this half-century-long prohibition, some brave scientists persisted in imploring the government to allow research into these consciousness-enhancing substances. One of those men is today's guest, Dr. Phil Wolfson. Due to his tireless efforts, Phil became one of the first in our country to be allowed by the government to do research on MDMA. I'm pleased to report that he has discussed that research on this very program, and you can listen to that interview on our archive for Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. It will also be available in my upcoming book, Psychedelic Medicine, published in November. One of the medicines which was never made illegal in the war on people was ketamine. As a result, we now have real information about ketamine. 
Today's guest, Dr. Phil Wolfson, now brings us his latest written work, The Ketamine Papers. It's my pleasure and privilege to have Phil with us today because he's both an esteemed colleague and a good friend. Though we don't see one another often enough, I know deeply that I can always call him and he'll always be there for me. That's because of who he is. Phil has earned the title of Renaissance Man, and here are some of his accomplishments. Phil has been practicing psychotherapy for 50 years. He has directed an alternative hospital for psychiatric care, which focuses on family support, process work, and alternatives to medication. He is the founding member of the Spiritual Emergency Network, Google SEN, and find out a lot about what that means. Phil taught in three Bay Area graduate schools in psychology, and he's formerly assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at UCSF. Phil was able to practice MDMA therapy when it was legal, and he published on its use in psychotherapy. He's a founding member of the world-famous Hefter Research Institute, which is one of the foremost research institutes on the planet into psychedelic medicine. He was also the principal investigator for the MAPS-sponsored MDMA and life-threatening illness study. MAPS, you will recall, is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, and the founder, Rick Doblin, has been on this program several times. Phil is also a Vajrayana Buddhist practitioner involved in the development of secular Buddhism. We may hear some about that today if there's time. He also ran an R&D nutraceutical company, Phytos, P-H-Y-T-O-S, and he wrote and had issues five patents in herbal medicine. We may get to hear a little bit of what he thinks about what I said before about supplements and affecting the liver. Phil has experience in complementary medicine. He's the founder and director of Energy Focus, EFO, the largest developer and manufacturer of fiber optic lighting, and it's a main force company in developing energy-efficient green lighting solutions. Phil practices extreme gardening, and he also designs and makes furniture and other objects from wood and stone. His private home is a fabulous piece of creativity that he himself built. Phil is also the author of the deeply touching book, Noah, a father-son song of life, love, illness, and death. For those of you who had the traumatic experience of losing a child, as well as others interested in the subject, my interview with Phil on this courageously personal book is also in the archive of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Wow, what a resume, and that's just part of it. Thank you for being with us today, Phil. It's a pleasure to have you here. Well, I'm completely honored, Richard. I don't need to have an ego after that introduction. <laughs> Bill, you have done so much, and you've contributed so much. You know, it was a pleasure writing that up, and it was a real pleasure being able to announce it. So, Well, you're very generous. Thank uh, you so much. Uh, the ketamine papers. First yeah. of all, before we go into information about the ketamine papers, tell our audience, what is ketamine? Well, it's a very uh, complex subject by the book. But <laughs> very good. Ketamine is uh, an analog made in the early 60s of PCP, which is legendary bad frame for its effects on uh, humans, including uh, violence, 
coming out during that state. And uh, it got a very bad name in the early 60s. But as with all uh, drugs that are kind of primary, people then put substitutions of different atoms on those drugs and look up their effects, work up their effects. So the third in the class uh, of PCP-like substances was synthesized in the early 60s and worked up in 1965 and eventually released as an anesthetic. Its mechanism of action is complex and uh, not entirely understood, but the general theory is that it has a different neurotransmitter signature than the typical antidepressants in common use, like Prozac, Paxil, Effexor, to use brand names. And that difference uh, is critical to what's been happening with ketamine and its clinical usage. That difference being that it is in the glutamatergic system, which is the most widespread neurotransmitter system in the brain, and so it offers an alternative path than the typical antidepressants. In psychiatry, really, there's been really nothing new for depressed people chemically in decades. Part of my interest in the in interviewing you, Phil, on the antidepressant effects of ketamine, even though, as you say, and we know, its primary usage has been as an anesthetic, both for humans and animals, as I understand. But this, the, the interest I have in the use of it as an antidepressant is particularly because on this program, I have interviewed several times Robert Whitaker, who wrote a book, Anatomy of an Epidemic, and I, which you're familiar with, in which, which Robert says that his research strongly indicates that people with many of the what we call psychotic or aberrant disorders supposedly have neurotransmitters which are out of balance, and the SSRIs put them back in balance, but his research indicates that these people are not out of balance to begin with, and the SSRIs put them out of balance, whereas ketamine does not have that kind of an effect, as I understand it, or does it? I think Whitaker's work is wonderful but controversial. I would change the way I put it. Okay. So, uh, nobody knows what a chemical imbalance feels like or looks like. There's no such access to brain that we can say, oh, you're chemically imbalanced. Let's get a little lab test and we'll find out how you're imbalanced, then we'll correct it. There are a bunch of naturopaths who do assessments of various neurotransmitters, but they're external. And the neurotransmitters we're talking about are intracellular. They come about synapses, and they're not related to the general circulation of neurotransmitter-like substances, those being serotonin, noradrenaline, and dopamine. So those are where the traditional antidepressants focused. And the fact is that about 40 to 50 percent of people receiving classical antidepressants don't have an antidepressant effect. So they're left in deep depression. And we're talking about fairly deep depression. Typically, depression ends in three months. But many people have prolonged or lifelong depression, often related to developmental trauma, to PTSD, to the traumas of growing up in their particular family and culture, etc., to political drama of all sorts. So, and political uh, trauma, yes. Sure, yeah. cultural trauma. Yes. So the problem has been that so many people don't get a good drug effect. And psychiatry has moved, unfortunately, to be predominantly a medication specialty rather than 
a psychotherapy and medication specialty. So you so have a situation, excuse me, you have a situation where the profession is moving in terms towards medication, and you're telling us that at least 50% of the patients suffering de- from depression do not get a good result from these. Well, well whether it's 40% yeah, or 50%, right. it's a significant it, amount. Yeah, exactly. And those people have what's been defined as treatment-resistant depression. TRD. Namely that they've had two or more antidepressants have failed on them. Uh, just one comment. A long time ago, the profession moved towards pharma and drug-related uh, prescription-based psychiatry rather than psychotherapeutic work. There are still people doing it. You do it. I do it. There are a bunch of people. But generally, people in psychiatry, practitioners, MDs, have come out of it mostly trained around pharmacy. Well, so uh, let, me just take, are, let me take a sidebar and interrupt you. Thank you, Phil. Sure. Is psychotherapy, as you and I know it, and as you and I do it, is it slipping into history? Is it going out of vogue? Are we moving into this more mechanized way of treatment, more psychopharmacopoeia, if you will, the use of the, of the pharmacopoeia as a treatment modality? Is that taking over, or how are we doing in that area? What's your well, opinion? I mean, it's a very, it's a very broad question, yes. but the, the answer I would give is that MD psychiatrists have definitively moved towards pharma and prescription, whereas the burgeoning fields of psychologists, uh, marriage and family therapists, even people underground doing different kinds of work are legion and doing lots of different kinds of psychotherapy. There's no standardization of psychotherapy. Attempts have been made uh, by Beck and others to do CBT and, and now the DBT. And some of those are valuable, but they tend to be research-oriented, incomplete, and, and not as humanistic as I would like. The field is open and controversial. It always will be. It's about the human mind. There are great developments in it. I think uh, Van der Kolk's work on trauma is extraordinary. The body knows the score. I'm going to Richard Schwartz. Uh, workshop on internal family systems at Esalen, which is a wonderful development in looking at people and their parts. The field is always moving yes. and developing because mind is completely unknowable in its fullness, right? Right. And that's what makes it so much fun even 50 uh, years later that we've been doing it, huh? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Coming back to ketamine. Yeah. So started out as an anesthetic and then there was... but, but it was more complicated than that, because actually they began to see, the initial researchers, that there were these things they called eventually a psychotomimeticist or emergent delirium. So people coming out of anesthesia often had these very vivid uh, hallucinatory experiences, even in the 60s. That was not particularly recognized and kind of suppressed, but a small percentage of people who were coming out of anesthesia unprepared for amazing experiences would have terrible trips because as they left anesthesia, they would suffer with experiences that they couldn't catalog and were unprepared for. Later, towards the uh, late 70s, and this is part of the book and a very interesting part, a Mexican psychiatrist named Salvador Roquette in Mexico, where he had the protection of the attorney general's office in that time, began to do amazing psychedelic mind-manifesting journeys, which he called psychosynthesis. And over time, in a very intensive way, using both medicines like LSD and ketamine 
and others, psilocybin, uh, he uh, gave people extraordinary uh, sets of experiences, some of them very difficult. Some of them were called malviaches, or bad trips. But that wasn't the essential part. He would help people to lose their egos, and then they dissolve in the midst of all of this over days and days of work, and then he'd help people rebuild their minds. Very controversial. In the 80s, he came to a Maryland Psychiatric Research uh, Center where Stan Graf, who we know is in his 80s, he's a beloved guy, one of the great writers on LSD work and birth matrices, where he and Stanley Krippner, another great authority on dreams and, and many, many other things, uh, began to work with it. And Richard Jensen, who's written a great story of uh, Roquette's work. And ketamine became... Uh, by the way, I, I want to talk after this about your interview with Jensen because it's a fascinating sure. interview. Yeah. So, so in any event, uh, Roquette introduced ketamine to the United States. People saw its amazing psychedelic potential. It was administered basically intramuscularly, which many of us are doing now, and producing what I call transformative journeys. So that was how it got here. Then to go back to the uh, psych psychiatric side, in the late 1990s, researchers at the National Institute of Mental Health recognized that ketamine, they had a, it was, it's anecdotal, that ketamine might have had a, an antidepressant effect. There's been a great hunt for new drugs to produce antidepressant effects. Yes. Well, these people, Chinese, Arate, others, began to work it up, and they developed what I call the NIMH protocol, which is where people come in and smoke. Why do we practice the use of ketamine right now? Clinics growing everywhere doing this, where you go in, you're set up by a nurse practitioner with either an anesthesiologist, supervisor, or a psychiatrist, if you're lucky. And some of the anesthesiologists are great people doing great work. And they put in an IV under very medical circumstances, and they begin a drip, which contains ketamine. 0.5 milligrams per kilogram, so if you're 70 kilogram average person, you get 35 milligrams of ketamine delivered over 40 minutes. You get a mild trance. And the effort was to eliminate the psychedelic part, but you can't entirely do so. People have mild trance-like psychedelic experiences, which I believe are essential to the effects of the drug. People come then back after about a 45 minute, 50 minute experience, come back more or less six times uh, over two weeks to the clinic and get more IVs. And then there's follow up. Time out, so, just one second. I just want to. Time out indeed. Thank you. You're saying that there are clinics right now around the United States where a person listening to this program can go and get up to or a full protocol of six administrations of ketamine and hopefully as... It doesn't stop there. What was originally found as one administration of ketamine, this is again laid out in the book, produces a small transient but not enduring effect in terms of helping people with deep depression. Several days or up to a week. Yeah. yeah. Most of the time it's a few hours. Oh, even less. Look, the outliers are the long term. I see. So... What was discovered, if you did more sessions in a row, there was what we call a cumulative effect. Yes. So ketamine would produce a more lasting effect, but generally it's not limited to six sessions. People go back periodically. They may have two more sessions afterwards. Kaiser has protocols. Kaiser's doing this work in San Francisco, doing it in Santa Rosa, 
in Fremont. So there's an understanding that people suffering with treatment-resistant depression in particular are getting benefit and it's less expensive than keeping them in, in therapy or unsuccessful treatment. So there's a, a statistic, an important statistical result. 40 to 50% of people in these circumstances, sometimes more, have relief from depression of significance. That's a great boom. Because if 40% of people don't get effect from the antidepressants in the first place, and another 50% of those who, who do get an effect from ketamine, you got 20% of people who now really have a significant effect. It's a huge market. It's also, you know, a health market. People are suffering and they want to get relief. Depression can be, as you know, terrible. It can be life-threatening, suicidal. It can be just unnerving. It can ruin families, income, everything. So getting that much benefit is an enormous uh, uh, boon to human beings. By the way, as I just want to add into that, you mentioned, you know, how terrible depression can be. And for those of you listening, you want, want to read an, an interesting book. It's called Darkness Visible. Do you remember that book? Sure. Styron wrote the book. And Styron never recovered. And I Sty was, Styron, he never recovered. He never recovered. And he talks in his book about being in Paris to receive the highest literary war, award of, the, of France. And he can't get out of bed in his room because he's so depressed. Well, I met him after the book came out. Remember, oh Sophie's Choice. Yes. Of many, many wonderful books. He was a genius, and he couldn't get out of the depression. I heard him talk uh, years after start. He didn't last that long. After the depression book came out, he was still unable to get out of his depression. It could be awful. Many people suicide. Yes. So suicide is one of the leading causes of death in the United States. So it's not a, an insignificant problem. Also, ketamine was found useful in emergency room settings for agitation, and it has a significant benefit for suicidality. That is, if you provide someone with a real ejection of it and take them out of this timefulness, this rumination spirit, and give them a break, it's a little like ECT, then people come out of it and they've forgotten about, to some extent, about where they were. So it's a timeout. And we'll talk about the ways we're doing ketamine differently than the IV method. So the IV method has proliferated across the United States. There are clinics in most major cities, and uh, uh, it's very expensive. Usually runs from $2,500 to $6,000 for the six sessions. There's no psychotherapy, though some people put in additional therapists in their practices. And you can find it in most major cities now. Now, for the 50%, roughly, yeah. that get a benefit from yeah. this, do we have an idea of how long they get a benefit before uh, four until they need an additional six? It's variable. So I'm just starting what I call the ketamine data project, K-data project, to develop a, a multi-centered um, study of the various practices of ketamine. Because ketamine is not a patented drug anymore. There's no pharma interest in doing studies. And so it's off-label. That's why insurance doesn't cover ketamine yet. As, is, as are many uses of drugs that have an indication and are approved. For instance, Prozac got the indication for depression, but off-label, it's used for myriad other things, PTSD, you name it. Weight so, gain. Weight gain should be one of them. Uh, <laughs> well, it doesn't cause weight gain. Well, a lot of my patients who have taken Prozac have gained a lot of weight very quickly. That's why I put that in sort of humorously. 
Yeah. Folks, you're listening to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. Our guest today is Dr. Phil Wolfson. He's talking about his most recent book, The Ketamine Papers. I'm about to ask Phil to talk some about a word that you mentioned before, transformative. You said that there's a transformative aspect to your work with ketamine. Please tell us how you mean that. Well, let me let me give a little filling to it. Fair enough. So, um, I have had a, a lot of personal experience. That's why I thought ketamine was a valuable drug, that it is transformative in the sense that one comes back from a ketamine psychedelic journey a bit different. It's very hard to stay the same. And the differences are generally constructive. The varieties of ketamine experience are as big as there are humans. And each time one does a ketamine session, as we do them with clients or as we've had with ourselves, you come back a bit different. The experiences are always different. The trips are always different. So we do two things with ketamine, which is a bit different. At a conference in uh, October 2015 of the small but growing group of ketamine practitioners, a fellow from Tasmania, a psychiatrist, who had just been publishing a book, which is a good book called Ketamine for Depression. And he had said, and we, we didn't know this, that you could use ketamine not as an intravenous process, but as a psychotherapy process, using it sublingually. Ketamine is a, a drug you can absorb in myriad ways. You can absorb it intravenously by slow drip or a bolus, rapid infusion. You can absorb it intramuscularly. You can absorb it by inhaling it through your nose. You can absorb it even anally. But we've come to use it uh, in a solution or a lozenger uh, that people uh, have in their mouths, and it's uh, absorbed through the uh, mucosa, the lining of the mouth in uh, 5 to 10 to 15 minutes. So it's absorbed in a small percentage of the drug you provide, and it uh, creates a trance. So this fellow... And you use the, the protocol that you mentioned before, 0.5? No, we don't do any of the intravenous. No. We have pioneered getting away from the medical model. We don't like the medical model. I see. We support other people doing what they want to do, but we're doing it in a different way entirely. So people come to us, we do an intake, and then we give a dosage escalation session of putting people into the trance where we communicate with them. It becomes like MDMA, a psychotherapeutic tool. So people are not unconscious by any means. They're conscious. They're aware of themselves. But a few things happen with ketamine in a trance state. It's hard to have negative feelings. It's hard to have thoughts. So, And yet you can express yourself fully, and you'll have some highlights that are hallucinatory in their way, not necessarily important to the experience, but what's important is it's an amazing time out. And then there's the drug effect of an antidepressant effect too. So we have both going. A psychotherapeutic experience as a time out from ordinary mind that's depressed or suffering with trauma and a suspension of that for a time. And we train people with this and then they have lozenges sessions at home by prescription, and we help them with monitoring that email, they come back to us. And then we may go on, I'm almost there, Okay. go on to transformative sessions, which involve intramuscular injections, but we prepare people for that because ketamine journeys are very, very potent. They're amongst the most potent psychedelic journeys you could take, and we have a protocol for that, and not everybody coming to us 
is familiar with psychedelics, and we want people to be comfortable. We don't have bad trips. We have exploratory trips. We have transformative trips. We have people going into the cosmos. We have people in all kinds of wonderful states coming back. But people in the state don't really talk. They're not fully conscious. What ketamine does at a higher dose, other than the trance state, is it separates the mind and the body. That's why it's called a dissociative anesthetic. So the, generally at those states, you don't feel much of your body. And you're traveling separated from your senses, from particularly from visual uh, and modifying auditory, and particularly from tactile senses. So you're inside yourself having this journey. Again, you're free from depressive thoughts. You're free from negative thoughts. So it's a true time out in consciousness. And that's an amazing boon. So we think our statistics are going to be much better. We're in the beginning of cataloging those as we do this project with Vanderbilt University and the REDCap uh, protocol. And so we'll have results in about six months. Hopefully from our uh, work, we have about 80 people now in hundreds of sessions. And from other people doing uh, the work in intravenous ways, there are a bunch of practitioners who have practiced with the intramuscular method and believe that is a great antidepressant method. We try and combine both. Uh, so we're trying for a truly enduring effect, and we have great results. Not with everyone, but great results. The sum total of our genetic inheritance and our experience, and then our behavior over time, is referred to as character, right? We build up a character, a way of being in the world. Sure. Talk to us about how ketamine and how you work with ketamine to help free us up from this character that we become, that we're so stuck in, that we sometimes feel like robots, so we have almost no options because we're acting in character. You know, that's the way he is. Uh, we know so-and-so, you know, that's how he is or she is, right? Please talk about that. Great question. So I talk about the rubber band effect that after even a great journey, we come back to being ourselves. It's a great debate. In Buddhism, you know, the, the essence of, of Buddhism is that there's no intrinsic self, meaning that we are completely fluid. And Buddha nature within Buddhist theory is about that complete fluidity, that spaciousness, that clarity place, kind of the mother ovary from which all thought, feeling, and sensation emanates. And we can experience that, right? But so the argument is that we're completely free of any essence that's fixed. Unfortunately, we have too much evidence to show that we're all too fixed in character or personality. Yes. That's what ruptures us, basically. What ruptures us is doing the same old stuff. And we tend to be fixed because of hurt or training or personality, but particularly trauma. The more we really understand people, the more we see small trauma, small losses, ways in which we're trained and ways in which we become aberrant. So character, the character we really are talking about is our difficult side, right? It's our neurotic side or it's our persistence in being stupid about a lot of things, right? Yeah, self-defeating behavior, yeah. It's not the part of our big self, our S, our giant self, our one that we're trying to be in right now, you and I, Richard, where we're trying to be fluid and who am I? I'm, I'm being real. I, you know, see you. I, I love you. I feel you. We're trying to talk to a lot of people. We're trying to communicate something good. You know, this is not really the character we're struggling with. The character we're struggling with are formations, stuck places, hurt places. And those character issues 
are changed with psychedelics, but people not not everyone changes. A lot of people come back to being the same. It's a rubber band effect. So we need to support character change with things like meditation, spiritual practice, good diet, exercise, mindfulness, inventiveness, creativity, all the good things that go into having a rich and thoughtful life. Good politics, opposing horrible humans who might have become president, things like that, you know. So so the ketamine experience loosens people. No matter who you are, you will have a loosened experience. You will be different both from the trance and the transformative experience, not unlike other psychedelics, not unlike MDMA. MDMA is not legal. Psychedelics aren't legal. Millions and millions of people do them at peril. It's awful. At peril, but, but well, hold on a second. How is it that this wonderful ketamine did not become illegal? Did it slip through? What's going on here, Phil? It's just an escape. God help us if they come down on it. It's an escape because NIMH got into it. You know, it was, you know, quasi-okay. They tried to eliminate any psychedelic effects. I would argue they're uneliminatable uh, as complete, completely. You can reduce them to almost nothing. But unless you get into a trance, you don't have a real experience. There has to be some degree of a timeout from ordinary mind. That's what ketamine offers. That's what other psychedelics offer. But ketamine's an anesthetic. And so as you move up the dosage, your timeout grows stronger your your dissociation from this life becomes stronger. So you have a kind of window of new experience freed from character to some extent, to a great extent, depending on how far you go. So people in our work who benefit come back with less of their character, happier, and those who don't have rigid minds that we can't get around. Do you They're, have people coming rigid. back and saying to you that they feel like They've cracked out of their character a bit, yeah. that they have more options in some way. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Not they, everyone. No, but, but they speak the, that way. The work. I mean, it's like taking psychotherapy and putting it into a Zoom, like with MDMA. With MDMA, it was a revolution. You sat with people for three to five to six hours, and people had a different experience of themselves. And in the therapy, the quality of em empathy towards oneself, towards others, grew and grew. Well, ketamine's not quite as empathic as MDMA, and we'd love to see it MDMA legal, but I would call it a euphoragen and a timeout. And it really enables people to get free for periods of time. I can't say you don't go back to being who you are. That rubber band effect exerts itself, but there's a lot of, 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 of great stuff coming out of people. But, really. you, but what you can say is that you've seen serious relief in a certain percentage, and it's a significant percentage, from depression. We have to get our statistics together, but I think we're at plus uh, more than 70% of people having significant relief from depression, PTSD. We're using it for many, many things. And some things we can't use it for. It's not good for a bunch of things. But it's really good for a lot of emotional things and uh, for mine. And so we're having a lot of fun with it. Hard work, people come in. Our sessions are about two and a half, three hours long. Uh, two of us working together as a couple, man, woman much as we do with the MDMA study that we're almost done with, Richard. We have our last subject coming in, 18 That's subjects. So terrific. we've had a great experience with that. Everyone's had a great experience in the MDMA life-threatening uh, illness study. It's been fabulous. In your opinion, based on all of your experience, how much difference is there between 
administering, let's use ketamine now, the ketamine in a Kaiser or a hospital or an institutional or a clinic situation and in a more homey, as per the Maryland uh, Institute, or perhaps where you administer it, in terms of set and setting, there's a major difference between an institutional clinic and a homey setting, just as in, in childbirthing, the difference between having a beautiful, comforting room in a hospital that seems like home and having a baby in a sterile room. What's your opinion on that? Is there a big difference? Uh, I mean, in fairness, I think a lot of the people practicing with the IV method are trying to make it a comfortable setting, but you still have crash carts and intravenous lines, and it's kind of invasive. But a lot of people are trying to make it hospitable, and so they deserve great credit for that. Uh But uh, but it is still more medical, and our place is a very comfortable place. You know, with the MDMA study, is in my home. We're not doing all this in my home, i got to say, but we have a wonderful, comfortable place, and people lie down, and, you know, people are treated very well. And uh, there's no medical aspect to it. We do blood pressures. We have to watch certain things. uh, But generally, it's not invasive in any sense. Talk to us a bit about physiological complications such as tachycardia. That's high pulse rate, folks. Bradycardia. I read about that in your book. There are some cases of of both of those going on. Is that significant or is that dose related and you're able to handle it because you're keeping the doses low? Well, we haven't had any of those complications Ah. 80 people, we get high blood pressure, which is transient. We screen people for blood pressure. If they're untreated and they have hypertension, we won't do them until they're treated. Uh-huh. But generally, the, you know, the, the blood pressure goes up, comes down. That's true with MDMA as well. Pulse rate uh, stays pretty much constant uh, with, with uh, uh, ketamine. Uh, you know, we've had people who get agitated, and some people use uh, benzos like lorazepam, or valium-like substances to control agitation. I just let it pass. It comes uh, about that people move through it. So if you're experienced with journeying with people, there's almost no side effects. We have nausea, sometimes vomiting in a small percentage of people, uh, depending on the dosage uh, that we use with people. But some people get sick. We've had one man, a very large man, who got sick on a very low dose, was sick for quite a while. That's a rarity. Now, so you, you mentioned... Very safe drug. Very safe, very safe, underlining. Salvador Roquette, when he came to the Maryland Clinic, as described in your book, he was demonstrating how to use ketamine at the tail end of an LSD experience. True. Does it look to you from a distance, because we're not allowed to do LSD research at the present time, where very few people are, are we losing out there? In your, is that something that would have been it would be good if somebody could do research on that combination? Would would it even further enhance or what? Well, there are many potential psychedelic combinations. That's one that we'd like to know more about. There are combinations uh, with MDMA that people use underground. Combinations with 2CB, uh, you know, and, and people tend to use ayahuasca on its own because it's so potent in its way. But if you look at the the panoply of psychedelics, many of them have been used conjointly. And I think that's a worthy uh, subject for research, of course. Many decades went by and we weren't able to do the kind of research that you're doing. You were one of the first to get a license to do an MDMA study. On a personal level, how satisfying? How do you feel about that? How was that after all that time of trying and trying and getting it? 
Well, you've talked about my son Noah dying of leukemia after four years. So I was, uh, you know, stricken by that for a long time. And then Rick Doblin of MAPS came along. There had been studies before ours. And he said to me, well, you want, there's been a bequest for a study of people with life-threatening illness, terminal illness. We knew we couldn't do terminal illness because our study is prolonged. It's four or five months and then a follow-up. So uh, I was deeply moved to be able to help people with cancer and other life-threatening illnesses and to begin again to use MDMA as a psychotherapeutic tool in one of the most intensive publicly paid for psychotherapy experiences that's ever happened. Yes. And the results are great. Unfortunately, we fall in love with our subjects. So we're always talking <laughs> to them, seeing them even then. We have our first subjects a year out, and uh, everyone's doing well. People re-entering their lives have their struggles, but fabulous results. And be very happy when we can write them up and report them in some months. So it's been delightful. I'm elated by it. Now you're elated by it. Elated, yeah. You you (laughs) had the good fortune to be able to administer MDMA to patients when it was legal. Yes. I had the good fortune that my therapist administered it to me back when it was legal. Dr. Robert Cantor, you might, might remember him. He was a wonderful bass. He was an operatic singer of consequence. He was. And he gave it to me, and I remember the first time I got to his office at 9 o'clock in the morning. He gave it to me about 10 minutes after 9. The effect really took hold of me at about 10, roughly. We had a two-hour therapy session till noon. At 12.15, I was leaving and got back in my car, and I was back in my office by 1.15 that same day. You're a hardhead, Richard. Our people stay with us. For seven hours, six hours, well, yeah. some of them are stoned for eight hours on MDMA. So, wow, you're, that, you're, you're a different kind of guy. That was Dr. Cantor the Elder. That's what I can yeah. tell you. That was his protocol. And, um, and we did that you know, repeatedly, and it had a remarkably positive effect. And then, of course, it got scheduled and became illegal. And it is 85, right. And that's right. And I was seeing him in 83 and 84. And now Rick Doblin tells us he thinks there's light at the end of the tunnel, that MDMA might uh, be legal maybe in as early as 2021. So many of us... We hope that. We don't really know we're about to go. We've received the go-ahead to do phase three studies under MAPS leadership, which are large studies that proceed being recognized for prescription. So hopefully, depending on the political climate, because it's precarious, as you know, we're worried about what will happen to marijuana's legality. And we're worried about what the Trump administration will do with anything, because he seems to be just destroying everything at once. So we don't know what will happen with FDA. But it looks like we'll get to phase three. And if that happens, there'll be 200 to 300 people in studies in 10 sites to look at this uh, MDMA experience that similarly to what we've done very intensively and to move it into uh, prescription status by 2021, as you pointed out. Yeah, we hope for that. What is your sense of the scientific community's mm, feelings, feelings, if you will, as well as thoughts about the political situation in this country? What, what's, what are the tom-toms beating to us, Phil? You mean now under the new circumstances? Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. I, I don't have my ear to the ground well enough to answer it. I mean... You know, we just had 
huge demonstrations that were so moving and deep. I was at the San Francisco one, you know, and uh, there were plenty of scientists at every one of those. I know a few. So, I mean, the, the horror of what's emerging is going to push a lot of people into this realm. I mean, if you really get rid of global climate change politics and you really suppress any attempts to heal the environment and you approve of the tar sands projects, the pipelines, and you're just making money for big business as your political venture, eventually most people will wake up, we hope. So let me give a plug. So my son, I can't even say his name anymore. He's officially changed his name to Paul E. Amori, and he's on the voteforlove.com uh, site running for mayor of Los Angeles as a character. And uh, he's one of 11 candidates. The election is March 7th. And he's a burner. And he has at uh, festivals a thing called Amori's Casino. He was mayor of Lightning in a Bottle for four terms, which is kind of a joke. That's his political experience to run for mayor of Los Angeles. But in this time of trying to develop alternative politics, the vote for love thing is really taking off. It's really smart. It's an attempt to generate love as the basis and sharing as the basis for political consciousness and action. So we wish him well. It's going to be a lot of fun. He may well not win, but he's bringing a new kind of consciousness that we need, along with scientists. Spell his name for our listeners, please. Well, it's like polyamory. That's the joke. Paul, E, middle initial, A-M-O-R-I. The, the site is vote, B-O-T-E, the, letter, the number 4-L-O-V-E.com. Vote for love, and you'll have a good experience. Great stuff on it. Funny. He's a great character. So people can go to Google, put in vote, the number for, four, uh, love, and they can find out about your son and about his run for mayor of Los Angeles. I don't have to say he's my son anymore. He officially changed his name. He got a driver's license with it. So I'm not allowed to say his real name. <laughs> well, okay, fair enough. I remember being on a program one time with Are You Serious? Remember him? Are You Serious, right. Who wrote, for, I think, for Wired magazine. Phil, what are you reading lately? Do you have time to read, and what are you reading? Yeah, I read a lot. Um, I'm reading a book on Chechnya, a novel. Uh, that's a very fine novel, but the most depressing thing, I wish I would finish it already, because Chechnya and the Russians and the rest was so horrible. I'm reading a, a book on uh, uh, Dzogchen practice, uh, in, in the acrid method. I read a lot of different things. I, I think the book Debt, I'm almost done with. Fabulous book on the nature of debt and what it means politically and economically. I love but, that book Debt so much that yeah. I don't like finishing it because I just am totally engrossed with it. And the other book that relates to, in some way, I connect to the book Debt is the book Sapiens. Uh -huh. You've seen Sapiens, and I think if our listeners are listening in. These two books, Dead and Sapiens, are, are really a, a lot of fun. They're serious books. And I, I would really recommend uh, for people interested in knowing about their trauma, Bessel van der Kolk's book, The Body Knows the Score. It's one of the best books ever written in psycho psychology, and Bessel's a psychiatrist, Harvard-trained, Dutch by background, fabulous human being. He's a little older by two weeks than me, so you know he's got to be smart. <laughs> the body knows the score, knows the score. for our listeners. Very, the very body. Terrific, help. terrific help to think about what's happened to you. And then in the book, I got a little plug for the book. The back of the book in the transformation thing, I have a thing called the Transformation Codex. 
which is a lot of fun to work with. If you take your personal life and you look at all the points of transformation, small, medium, and large, and really write them down, you really get a kind of uh, longitudinal view of yourself and how you've changed. Because of this issue you brought up of character, if you really look at, well, how has my character shifted? How am I different? What has happened that's moved me? So it could be taking on a family, having a child, as we've done, or children. Or it could be, you know, uh, going, uh, having your first joint. Or it could be uh, going to your, having a bar mitzvah, or whatever. Or it could be, you know, uh, an amazing psychedelic trip, or your first trip out of the country. Yes. But look at all of these experiences, write them down, and kind of look at them. Are they big, are they small, how do they shape you now? It's a really fun experience to do for yourself. Writing down the different experiences over time that stand out. Yeah, longitudinally. Your chronology. Uh, who are you? How have you moved? Well, I, I know, and you do too, Richard, that while we are our parents' child or children, we are very different than our parents, aren't we? Even though we were shaped by them, we've made a lot of moves, right? Yes. And those moves have made us, in some ways, recognizable or unrecognizable to our parents, right? Yes. My God, yours are gone. I think Ramdas said it very well. Ramdas had this thing where he used to talk about his personality. And he would say, Well, how am I the same? How am I different? Al Cap had a, a cartoon, he was a great cartoonist. Yes. Uh, and he uh, had a little white schmoozy, schmoozy things that he called schmooze. And so what Ramdas said, if you look at my schmooze, I started out with these big schmooze. And over time, what's happened? I haven't stopped being who I am. I haven't given up all my neuroses, but my schmooze is smaller, meaning my neuro neuroses are not as big. You could argue without knowing him, but that's all right. Your own personal experiences with some of these psychedelic medicines have changed you. Definitely. Tell our listeners a few ways that stand out for you, Phil that you've changed as a result of these experiences or a few things that you've learned that you think are large? Well, my, uh, my first experience was a naive 21-year-old uh, in medical school in 1964, and a bunch of us in medical school dropped acid together. We didn't know what we were doing. I actually went out to dinner in an Italian restaurant with two straight friends, and the floors started moving and things started eating. Oh, my gosh. Laughing, laughing uh, you know, uncontrollably. And I said, you got to get me back. i got to get back to my friends. So then we were together, nine of us, on the dormitory rooftop at NYU Medical School. And some of us thought we could fly. And we were nine stories up. It wasn't a good idea. <laughs> you know. And then things would happen. you jump up in the air and you, you wouldn't come down. Or you would eat something and it would disappear as if you'd never tasted it into a tube. And then there were mystical experiences unfolding. So that was a huge change in terms of the kind of imagination and experience of mind that left me from being a small guy from a place in Queens to a larger mind. But a second one, and it's legal to talk about it, and, you know, about 40% of people don't have good marijuana experiences. But when I came to marijuana in New York in the, in the same period, Marijuana transformed me from a very self-conscious person who couldn't dance without hating himself to a person who loved music, loved to dance, <laughs> you know, had great, con con uh, you know, great times with friends, 
marijuana was a, a, one of the most powerful tools that I've ever had for transformation. I'm going to Many stop. I'm going to, I'm going to stop you there because we're broadcasting this from the heart of marijuana country, and also I just got a signal that we're out at the end of our interview. Oh, well, it's been great. Thank it's you been, so much, and thank you so much, Phil. It's great seeing you. It's great talking to you. I, I thank you so much for being here, and I want to do it again. Of course, we've got to get together this year. Let's not let the time go by. <laughs>